You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. Lecture 9 of the Spiritual Beings in the Heavenly Bodies and in the Kingdoms of Nature by Rudolf Steiner In our last lecture, we pointed to the relation between the spiritual forces at work in the beings of the kingdoms of nature on earth and what we see externally. Today let us recapitulate briefly how that has been worked out, for it is necessary to examine more closely the things that form an essential part of our theme as they will lead us to what is to be the culminating point of our lectures, a comprehension of the living cooperation of the beings of the various hierarchies and their offspring in the heavenly bodies and in the kingdoms of nature. We said that human beings have the four principles of their being active on the physical plane, the physical body, etheric body, astral body, and I. Then we drew attention to the fact that in the animal three principles are active on the physical plane, the physical, etheric, and astral bodies, while the group I is on the astral plane. We saw also in the case of plants that only their physical and etheric bodies are active on the physical plane. Their astral bodies work on the astral plane and the group I on the devaconic plane. Regarding the mineral, we found only its physical body on the physical plane. Its etheric body we found on the astral plane, its astral body on the devaconic plane, and we found that in the region we designate as the higher devaconic plane dwell the group eyes of the minerals. We will now go on to show more in detail what all this really means. Till now I have only been able to say that occult vision which raises itself to the first of the supersensible worlds lying above us does not, in relation to the animal, find in the physical world what it finds there in relation to the human being, namely the eye. For what in the human being we call the I can be found in the case of the animal on the astral plane only, in the supersensible world. It is only there that it has the center of its activity. Occult science cannot ascribe an I to the animal in the physical world. It does not deny an I to the animal, but states that what can be designated as the I of an animal is only to be found in the astral world. One may easily raise objections to the fact that an eye is denied to animals, even to higher animals on the physical plane, for it it might be said, and indeed often is said, that with regard to their actions animals display an extraordinary intelligence, a quite wonderful comprehension, so that much that animals do on the physical plane can be likened to what human beings do. Now, those who express themselves thus have not grasped the fundamental principles of this matter, It would not occur to anyone who penetrates into these matters to deny what we call human soul forces to animals on the physical plane. There is no question of that. In this sphere lies the foundation of manifold mistakes and misunderstandings. Thus misunderstanding would at once arise if a certain materialistic Darwinism were to say in our time, Indeed, you anthroposophists look at the matter as though humanity were definitely to be sought on a higher stage of spirituality than the animal, whereas we see that the animal develops intelligence, so much intelligence. So much even 
of a certain instinctive morality exists in the animal kingdom, that what human beings have in their soul forces may well be a sort of higher stage of what we meet with in the animal kingdom. Unquote. The point of view involved here is quite false. No unprejudiced study would deny intelligence, even reason, to the animal kingdom. We need only consider such facts as that human beings arrived at the discovery of paper comparatively late in their evolution. The discovery of paper by human intelligence is represented in our historical descriptions as a very great acquisition, and in a certain respect it certainly is a sign of human progress. Yet wasps knew this art millions of years ago, for the material of which the wasps build their nests is really paper. We can therefore say, quote, what the human intellect as such accomplishes, the animal kingdom already possesses far, far down in its ranks, unquote. It would not occur to an unprejudiced observer to deny human soul forces as such to the animal. Indeed, in the realm of occultism, we are even convinced that sagacity and intelligence in animals is much surer, more precise, and much more free from error than in humans. The essential point is that in humans all these soul forces relate to an I in the physical world, an I that is developing itself individually in a physical world, going through an individual development and education. <clears throat> now as regards animals belonging to any one group, we know that the circle of their development depends simply on the species, the genus to which they belong. The case of human beings who develop themselves as individuals is quite different. If we direct our gaze to the animal kingdom, we find in the animal world the most varied forms, which differ far more from each other than do the human races. Certainly we find great differences in the human races all over the earth, but if we compare these with the great differences among animals from the imperfect up to the more perfect species, we notice how powerful is the differentiation in the animal kingdom, quite different from that in humanity. On what then does this depend? We can best obtain an approximate answer if we first of all ask what causes the variety of groups in the animal kingdom, the different species, which we find characteristically spread over the globe. Occult vision shows us that the cause of the varieties of the animal species simply does not originate on the earth. Rather, the animal species receive its forms from cosmic space. Indeed, the forces that produce one species come from a different part of cosmic space than those forces that produce another. The forces that construct the various animal forms stream down from upon our earthly planet from the other planets of our planetary system. We may actually divide the whole animal kingdom into six or seven principal groups, and these chief groups have the highest group eyes. They have the impulse for their activity in the six or seven principal planets belonging to our system, so that the forces that form the principal groups of animals work down spiritually from the planets. In saying this, we have at the same time given the concrete explanation of what is actually meant when we speak of the group eyes of animals. It means that in the animal dwell spiritual forces belonging to beings not to be looked for upon the earth itself, but outside the earth in cosmic space and indeed primarily in the planetary world. The regents, as it were, of the, principal group form, of the principal group forms of animals, 
live on our planets. They had to withdraw onto these planets in order to work down with their forces at the right distance from the earth and from the right direction. For what builds up the principal animal forms in the right way can only come from these directions in space. If the planets were to allow only these forces to stream down upon our earth, we would not actually have the multiplicity in the animal kingdom we now have. We would only have seven principal forms. Once upon a time in far distant ages there were only the seven principal animal forms. But these seven forms were very mobile and determinable, so soft and plastic in their formation that they could easily be transformed, one special form into another and again other forms into others. This actually occurred at a later period of time. The seven principal forms date far, far back, but then other forms appeared in addition to these and worked as it were either to strengthen or hinder the forces of the planets. I shall now explain how these other forces came into being. If we direct our ordinary vision to the heavenly spaces, we may easily believe that everything is actually of like form, but this is not the case. If we direct our gaze to a certain direction in space, occult vision perceives something quite different in one direction from what it sees in another. Space is by no means a homogeneous affair. It is not alike on all directions, for different forces work from the different directions of space. The whole of cosmic space is filled with spiritual beings of the different hierarchies working in different ways from various directions onto the earth. In those past ages, when people had a certain original primitive clairvoyance, the following was clear to them, quote, If at a particular hour of the day I direct my gaze to one part of the heavens, I encounter certain forces while in another direction I encounter certain other forces. Unquote. And people were also aware that from certain points precise and definite forces worked down from cosmic space that were of quite particular importance to the earth. These are all arranged in the stellar circle of cosmic space that has, become, that has been called the zodiac since ancient times. People did not speak then without reason of the zodiac or animal circle. They knew why it was so called. In the heavenly spaces, it is the case that forces that worked down from the planet Mars, for instance, and brought about in the still plastic animal substance one of the seven principal forms, worked in a different way, according to whether Mars stood before one sign of the zodiac or before another. The zodiac was divided into twelve signs, which represent the constellations, and according to whether the Martian forces that affect one animal form stood before Aries or Taurus or any other constellation, their influence varied. In this way the seven different forms were modified. A number of different animal forms were thus made possible. If you consider that to this must also be added the fact that Mars, for instance, can work qualifyingly when it stands before Leo so that it supplants the lion in relation to the earth, or that from the other side it works qualifyingly when the earth is between the sun and Mars, you see that there are a very great number of possibilities. All these forces have worked together to differentiate the seven original groups of the animal kingdom so that the whole multiplicity of our animal forms on the earth arose from the fact that the forces of the planets are actually the abode of the group souls, the group eyes of animals, and that these beings fulfill their tasks from these centers, for only from there can they do so. 
only because that particular group soul of an animal form, which was to work down from Mars, selected that position in the heavens, can it exercise the corresponding result upon the earth below. Here lie the forces that brought about the multiplicity of our animals. When we use the expression, quote, the animal group I is to be found in the astral plane, unquote, that really means that when a cult vision wishes to seek the group I of any animal form, it must seek for it not on the earth, but on one of the planets. What is to be found on the earth with regard to the human being can only be discovered by a cult vision for the animal outside, in cosmic space, among the planets. Just as, for instance, someone who has to accomplish something upon the earth that necessitates various standpoints must adapt himself or herself to these, so must the group I that dwells on a planet pass through cosmic space in front of the zodiac in order to differentiate its forces from there. Let me read that sentence again. Just as, for instance, someone who has to accomplish something upon the earth that necessitates various standpoints must adapt himself or herself to these, so must the group I that dwells on a planet pass through cosmic space in front of the zodiac in order to differentiate its forces from there. If we bring the facts just stated into connection with the fact that the impulse for the animal forms is continually sought today in some principle of the earth itself, in the struggle for existence or in natural selection or the like, then the facts that have come into being through the efforts of Darwin, for example, are magnificent insofar as he did not go beyond the facts. Unconsciously, Darwinism has described the mobility of the original animal forms and how they were actually created from the basic forms. But according to the whole predisposition of our time, Humanity has looked away from the fact that the forces which create those forms work down from cosmic space, and that therefore the creators of the animal forms are to be sought in the world of the planets, which belong to our planetary system but are outside our earth. If we now inquire how this matter stands in relation to human beings, we can only receive an answer by first answering that other question. Of what nature are the spirits which we have now described as the group souls of animals and which have their dwelling place upon the various planets. It is then seen that these group eyes of animals are the offspring of that category of spiritual beings to which I have referred in this course of lectures as the spirits of motion. Thus we must look upon the group souls of animals as the offspring of the spirits of motion. The spirits of motion actually gave the astral body to humanity out of their own substance during the ancient moon condition. In order to complete the matter, we may therefore say, this earth was preceded by the moon condition during which humans received their astral bodies from the spirits of motion. In other words, when the earth was moon, the old moon, not the present one, for the present moon is only a detached portion of the earth itself, while the ancient moon was an earlier incarnation of our earth, while the earth was in this ancient moon condition, the spirits of motion hovered, as it were, over this old moon and allowed their own substance to trickle in, to stream in to what humanity has brought over from previous conditions. So that what people acquired as astral body, which was new to them, for at that time they had only the physical and etheric bodies, was derived from the spirits of motion. 
The ancient moon had disappeared, the earth had been formed, the spirits of motion had developed offspring, besides carrying on their own evolution. These are the beings we designate as the group eyes of animals. They have not taken up their abode upon the earth, but upon the other planets, in order to work upon the earth from there, and bring forth the animal forms in the manner we have described. This is the special point in what I have stated. We can, in a certain sense, describe the group eyes as offspring of the beings of the second hierarchy. We must now put the following question. Since these offspring of the, anim- of the spirits of motion work down from the planets upon the animals, do similar spiritual beings work upon us, upon the human race, spread over the earth? We cannot answer this regarding those spiritual beings we have cited as the normal members of the several hierarchies, but we have mentioned a special category of spirits which we have called the Luciferic spirits, and we have described the relation of these to the normal spirits. In our present cycle of time, there are Luciferic spirits in every category of the hierarchies. Whereas the animal group souls are the normal and proper offspring of the spirits of motion, the Luciferic spirits corresponding to the spirits of motion, are those who resisted the normal path and have remained in opposition to the normal spirits of motion. These luciferic spirits of motion are grouped on the various planets in relation with the earth, just as are the normal offspring of the spirits of motion. They, too, have their parts assigned to them, so to speak, and have their abode apportioned to them on the various planets. Just as the group souls of animals dwell on the various planets, so also do certain luciferic spirits of motion. They have set themselves the task that really belongs to the spirits of motion, that of working formatively from the planets so that groups of corresponding beings arise upon the earth. Just as seven principal animal groups were formed that have only been specified according to the relations described, so did the luciferic beings of motion work from the planets onto the earth to differentiate the human race that was actually, in a certain sense, designed according to a single plan. While in the whole cosmic plan it was intended that a single human form is to arise throughout the earth, these luciferic spirits of motion worked down from the various planets and differentiated the human form all over the earth in such a way that the forms of the chief individual human races were able to come about. More details are to be found in my Christiana lectures, as to the special way in which the luciferic spirits of motion work to form the different races. Thus we have to distinguish between the offspring of the spirits of motion and the luciferic spirits of motion. But there is something else besides this. Naturally, we shall now have to ask the question, where are the normal spirits of motion now, who gave humanity its astral body during the ancient moon period? Where are those beings who attained the goal of their evolution at the time of the transition from the moon to that of the earth? Those completely mature spirits of motion, where are they now? The peculiarity of these beings is that they too have their actual dwelling place, or rather their field of operation, upon the planets of our system, so that they do not, for instance, work directly as spirits of motion from the sun, in which they have their headquarters, so to speak, but first send out their rays to the planets and from these work back upon the earth. Insofar as we have to do with the true spirits of motion, their activity comes directly from the planets of our system, but of course everything that works from the planets, from those spiritual beings, belongs to the supersensible, invisible world as such. 
Only the effects themselves are externalized upon the earth. The results appear on the earth. What do these spirits do now for human beings, who at one time upon the ancient moon gave humans their astral body from their own substance? This astral body was preserved as a germ in earthly existence, and after the old moon had disappeared and an interval had gone by and the earth had been formed anew, this astral body once more developed from the germ. But the spirits of motion themselves have developed further to a higher activity. Regarding their offspring, we know that they have become the group souls of animals. Those that rebelled against them took part, as we know, in the differentiation of the human races. Where do the progressed, genuine, normally developed spirits of motion now reveal themselves? An example will make this evident. We know that each individual human being is guided by what we call his or her angel. We know that nations are spiritually led by their nation spirit or archangel. Nations are quite different from races. We know that the successive periods of civilization are led by the spirits of the age or archai. And finally, we know that above the archai stand a category of hierarchies that we call the spirits of form, while above them are the spirits of motion. We will think of them as they are upon the earth, with the time behind them when they gave humanity the human astral body and having themselves made their proper progress. In human evolution there is something that goes beyond the character of the mere spirits of the age, something more full of significance, more important for collective humanity than the sphere of the individual spirits of the age. The spirits of the age work upon the earth for a definite period of time, but there are spiritual developments in the evolution of humanity as a whole that embrace wider spheres than that of the spirits of the age. These great epochs of humanity that extend beyond the influence of the spirits of the age have as their regent the normally developed spirits of motion, who reveal themselves by their activity in the process of the growth of humanity, so that they stimulate the great impulses of civilization. If we now survey human history, the history of human civilization, we see that individuals are guided by the angels or angeloi, nations and peoples by the archangels or archangeloi, certain periods of civilization are guided by the spirits of the age, and also certain spheres, as we shall see, by the spirits of form. Then, however, we have the collective course of the different civilizations in human evolution, so that for certain long periods of time, much longer than those ruled by a spirit of the age, the spirits of motion are inspiringly active in great spheres. <clears throat> one spirit of motion working down from one planet at one time, another working down at another time from another planet. Thus these normally developed spirits of motion so work down from the planets that they succeed one another in the process of human evolution and reveal themselves in the great civilizational impulses in the evolution of the earth that reach out beyond the sphere of the spirits of the age. Thus, for example, from that spirit of motion who worked down from the planet that present-day astronomy calls Venus, and which ancient astronomy called Mercury, for these two names have been exchanged, from that spirit of motion came originally that impulse of civilization which was expressed in Buddhism. Other impulses of civilization, coming from beyond the mere spirits of the age, came from the spirits of motion on the other planets. 
Thus, while from the offspring of the spirits of motion come the group souls of animals, and from the luciferic spirits of motion the racial forms of humanity, these great impulses of civilization come from the spirits of motion who have attained their normal evolution. Many other impulses also come from this direction, but it is presently important to bear in mind the impulses of civilization from this point of view. Now, here you have in this development of our whole planetary system something you find mentioned among the great truths which, as every experienced student knows, <clears throat> are to be found in the secret doctrine of H.P. Blavatsky. Those who know find indications of this there. On one page is written, quote, Buddha equals Mercury, unquote. That is, Buddha equals Mercury. That means the individuality who was the leader of Buddhism was traced back in occultism to the spirits of motion who worked down from the, that planet. He is the inspirer. From him comes the influence expressed in that stream of civilization. It is indeed the case that this remarkable book, The Secret Doctrine by H. P. Blavatsky, brings great truths, but they must be recognized in the right way. We must not simply accept this as a book of dogmas. We must trace each single thing in it. Only then shall we recognize the greatness of this book. Of all the great truths taught by true occultists, significant intimations are to be found in the secret doctrine of H. P. Blavatsky. And when, through its inspirer, there was inscribed in the secret doctrine, quote, Buddha is equivalent to Mercury, unquote, that hinted at the great truth of which the inspirer of H. P. Blavatsky was well aware that the individual who in his twenty-ninth year became the Buddha was able to begin to be inspired, at the time symbolically indicated as the sitting under the Bodhi tree, by the spirit of motion enthroned in Mercury. This individual, from being a Bodhisattva, became the Buddha. That means that his spirit was filled and inspired not by what comes from the earth sphere, but from universal space, from the cosmos. He was thus withdrawn from the earth sphere to nirvana, that is to say, that is, to a sphere in which the earth sphere no longer plays a part. H.P. <clears throat> Blavatsky, in her ordinary consciousness, knew nothing of many of these things, but her inspirer knew them. These things must be drawn forth from the depths of occultism, and in these subtle and great truths things must not be confused one with another. It is not my intention to assert that as soon as a bodhisattva is raised to a Buddha, a spirit of motion alone works inspiringly upon that being, for the beings of the higher hierarchies work through a Buddha also. The essential point is that from that time onward the spirits of the lower hierarchies fell away, so that a Buddha could come directly in contact, so to speak, with those beings designated as the normally developed spirits of motion. Now before we consider the process of human civilization from another aspect, let us pass to the plant kingdom. In that kingdom we see that the astral body is to be found on the astral plane, where the group eyes of animals also are. This leads back to the fact, revealed to occult vision regarding plants, that not only in their group eyes, but already in the astral body of the plant, forces are actively working down from the planetary system, from the stars. Thus, whereas in the animal, the spirits of motion are only active in the group forces, in the forces that create the group forms. What belongs to the sphere of the spirits of motion works in the plant on the astral body. The offspring of the spirits of motion belong also to this category. 
only they differ from the offspring of other beings because they were formed at a somewhat different time. As offspring of the spirits of motion, they work not merely upon the eye, but upon the astral body of the plants. We may say, therefore, that forces of the spirits of motion or their offspring work down upon the astral bodies of plants from the planets of our planetary system. In every being, the astral body is that which gives the impulses to motion. Plants have only their physical and etheric bodies on the physical plane. If any forces whatever were to work upon plants from the sphere of the spirits of motion, these forces would, as the astral body is not in plants but around them, bring about movement in the plants, though not movements like those of men and animals, but such as to draw forth the plants from the earth when they first appear. When you see the forces developing in a spiral, in a plant from stipule to stipule, you then have the activity of those forces that work down from the planets. And according to the way that the forces of the offspring of the spirits of motion work down from one or another planet, does this peculiar line that puts forth the leaves vary. This gives a certain means of studying the actual orbits of the individual planets through their reflection. And when external science has once recognized this fact, it will have to correct a great deal of the former astronomical systems. Certain plants are allotted to the forces of the spirits of motion who work from Mars, others to those who are on Venus, others to those on Mercury. According to the way they work in from one or the other planet, they impart to the plant the movement expressed in their spiral coil of leaves. It is the same movement the corresponding planet makes, the absolute movement it makes in the heavens. If you take an ordinary if you take an ordinary convolvulus in which the stalk itself is twisted, you have in the spiral movement of the stalk an imitation of the planetary movements that proceed from the spirit of motion. When the stalk is fixed, you have in the stipules images of those forces that proceed from the spirits of motion of the planets. These forces work upon the plants in cooperation with the actual group eyes, and these group eyes work in such a way that we can discover the direction of their forces simply by connecting the sun with the center point of the earth. That is to say, together with the forces that come from the spirits of motion, other forces work that go in the direction of the stalk of the plant, which is always striving toward the center point of the earth. Thus we have to compose the whole plant out of what grows toward the sun or toward the center of the earth, and what winds itself around and copies the movements of the planets in the stipules. This corresponds, however, with the fact that we have to seek the direct impulse of activity for the group eyes of plants in the direction from earth to sun. That is, if we do not direct our occult vision to the planet but to the sun, we shall find the different group eyes of plants. These group eyes of plants are the offspring of the spirits of wisdom, just as the group eyes of animals are the offspring of the spirits of motion. Thus, in the group eyes of plants, we have to recognize the offspring of the spirits of wisdom. In the course of these lectures, I have stated that in the nature spirits we see the offspring of the third hierarchy, and that in the group eyes we see the offspring of the second hierarchy. Now we come in addition to the spirits of the cycles of time, the rulers or regulators of the epochs. We have now reached a position in which we can allude to the functions of a certain category of such spirits of the cycles of time. 
At this point we can state that certain spirits of the cycles of time unite the forces of movement coming down from the planets to the plants that work spirally with the forces coming down from the sun. Both these forces are brought together at a definite time by the spirits of the cycles of time, and indeed it is at that time of the year when the plant is progressing toward its fructification that the spiral principle of movement is united with the principle that works in the stalk. Hence in the stamens we have the principle that works spirally, and in the ovary, in the center of the plant, we have the principle that is the continuation of the stalk. When the course of the plant is completed, that is, when the spirits of the cycles of time appointed to the plants unite their activity, the activity of the planetary spirits, with the activity of the sun spirit, then in the now completed plant those organs that till then followed this planet spirally are arranged in a neat circle like the stamens, while the stalk itself elongates and terminates in the ovary. These two are then united. The growth of the plant is complete when to the two spiritual activities of the offspring of the spirits of wisdom and of motion is added the activity of the spirits of the cycles of time, uniting the two spiritual beings in a sort of marriage. Thus, by means of the plant kingdom, we have an opportunity of becoming acquainted with the offspring of the spirits of wisdom. Further, as you may read in my occult science or in the Akashic record, we must assume that these offspring of the spirits of wisdom have been formed since the time when these spirits of wisdom themselves gave the etheric body to humanity from their own substance. That occurred when the earth was in the old sun condition. The etheric body of the human being was then derived from the spirits of wisdom. But now, since that time, the sun condition has progressed to the moon condition, and this again has progressed to the earthly condition. During the moon condition, the spirits of wisdom, who had, during the sun period, been able to give humanity its etheric body out of their own substance, had already progressed so far that they no longer needed to develop the capacity of giving anything to humanity. On the earth they had progressed to still higher activities. Now, it is not exclusively characteristic of the offsprings, offspring of the spirits of wisdom whom we discovered as the group eyes of the plant kingdom to give a direct impulse from the sun, so that it seems to come not only from the planets but from the sun. It is also peculiar to the actual spirits of wisdom that they reveal themselves as coming directly down from the sun to the earth. How are the impulses revealed that come down from these spirits of wisdom who have gone through their normal evolution? We have seen that in such a personality as the Buddha there is a normally developed spirit of motion working down from a planet and inspiring him. We now reach the point of seeking for the normal spirits of wisdom. According to the whole spirit of our considerations, we must seek them upon the sun. We must seek them there in the same sense that we have to seek for the normal spirits of motion as working from the planets, though they too have their real habitation upon the sun. We have to seek the impulse of the normally developed spirits of wisdom as coming directly from the sun. Now, however, we come to something peculiar. Certainly, with regard to the plants, if we really investigate occultly, we can distinguish a differentiation because we are concerned with the offspring of the spirits of wisdom. But if we consider the plants on earth in relation to the spirits of wisdom on the sun, their movements all appear more or less as a vertical union of the sun with the center point of the earth. 
In the plant form we can distinguish what proceeds from the spirits who have their dwelling place in the planets. But what we perceive as proceeding from the spirits of wisdom flows together in a vertical line. In a similar manner, and everyone who is acquainted with the occult facts in this sphere would give precisely the same information, it is the case that in the region we enter, when we direct our gaze to the sun, where we must seek the normal spirits of wisdom, we can no longer distinguish any differentiations. There we perceive unity. What proceeds from the normal spirits flows together in a unity. When we come to the question, where is that revealed which proceeds from the unity of the spirits of wisdom who have their dwelling place directly upon the sun? Where is that revealed in the activity of the earth? We come to a still wider sphere. The sphere of such a spirit as the one who inspired the Buddha, the spirit of motion on Mercury, is insignificant in comparison with the wider, more comprehensive sphere that in the process of the development of humanity is directed by the spiritual beings of wisdom perceived as unity, and that is to be sought upon the sun. If we go back to the civilization of ancient India, we find that the seven holy rishis spoke of what each one of them had to give to humanity from their occult foundations. They were conscious of having preserved what, through seven long periods of civilization, had been directed by the spirits of motion. It was just as though seven successive periods of time were all at once to unite in the evolution of the earth and were to work so that they represented a college of great individualities. So it came about that these seven successive activities of the spirits of the planets came to light in what the seven holy rishis had to say to humanity, each one speaking what he himself knew. They did not assert that what they had to give was the direct outflow of a spirit of motion, but they said that it was like a recollection in the soul of each of them of what had been given earlier by the spirits of motion. For the exalted wisdom that the holy rishis gave to humanity was the great recollection of the ancient Atlantean civilizations only in a new form. At the same time, these seven holy rishis said, quote, Above what we have to give as the civilizations of the seven successive periods of time lies something else that exists beyond our sphere. Unquote. That which lay above their sphere, the holy rishis called Vishwa Karma. Thus they alluded to something that lay beyond their sphere and that comprised a greater earthly sphere than that of the separate spirits of motion. As it was with the spheres of the spirits of the age, so did the holy rishis point to epochs of civilization that lie beyond the sphere of the individual spirits of motion. Then came the civilization of Zarathustra, and Zarathustra again pointed to the same being whom the holy rishis had called Vishva Karma, only he alluded to that being in his own way as Ahura Mazdao. The holy rishis knew, as also did Zarathustra, that what is meant by Vish Vishva Karma represents the spirit of wisdom, who streams down upon the earth and encompasses wider spheres than do the individual spirits of motion. Zarathustra also knew that Ahura Mazdao has wider spheres than the spirits of motion. Then came the Egyptian civilization, and for certain reasons it became necessary to say the present time, that is the Egyptian present, is not able to, to direct its vision to that sun-spirit of wisdom whom Zarathustra divined in his own way. Hence the Egyptian civilization clothed its concept of the nature of this spirit in the legend that when this spirit attempted to come down to the earth it was immediately dismembered 
Osiris, dismembered by his brother, is a reference to what the holy rishis pointed to in their Vishvakarma. <clears throat> During the fourth post-Atlantean period of civilization, it was pointed out that what every epoch of civilization had alluded to was to be attained by reason of certain special circumstances in direct vision in this fourth period of civilization, that is, through special events of the fourth post-Atlantean period. It was made possible for a human being to be inspired. The seven holy rishis had alluded to the fact that this sun-spirit of wisdom existed. Zarathustra said that with occult vision directed to the sun it was possible to see this being. Egyptian civilization stated that this being was still so far from the earth that humans could only meet him after death. The fourth post-Atlantean civilization was able to point out that conditions had arisen in our earth evolution which made it possible for a human being to be directly inspired by the spirit of wisdom for a period of three years. Hence it was possible to recognize as a fact that the sphere of this sun-spirit of wisdom is much more comprehensive than the sphere of the spirits of motion, for it now embraces the whole collective process of civilization on earth. What was designated in the language of the holy rishis as Vishvakarma and that of Zarathustra as Ahura Mazdao, in the Egyptian, if one really understands what stands behind the name, as Osiris, and what we in the fourth period of civilization designate by the word Christ, is what has shone down through the portal of the sun-spirit of wisdom. I have never said that only the spirit of motion shone through the Buddha, nor do I now say that the sun-spirit of wisdom alone shone through the Christ. He was the portal through which occult vision could be directed into infinite spheres to the spirits of the higher hierarchies. But the portal was the spirit of wisdom, the sun-spirit of wisdom. As the sun is related to the planets, so is the sun-spirit of wisdom related to the spirits of motion, who on their part express themselves in such spirits as the one who inspired Buddha. H. P. Blavatsky intended to express this in her theory, it would never have occurred to her to identify any of the planetary spirits of motion with the Christ. It would be a gross defection from the original spirit of the theosophical movement, in which there is so much that is great and true and important, and in which so many occult truths have prevailed, if we were to confuse what we have been able to learn through occultism with regard to spirits that reach their height in such a name as Buddha, of whom H. P. Blavatsky so plainly points out in her simple allegation that he corresponds to the spirit of Mercury. It would be a breach with all the original starting points of the theosophical revelation, with that teaching which in its time was rightly understood, and in which the spirit of Buddha was never mistaken for the Christ spirit, if today we were to confuse these different beings. It would be a breach if we did not know through our basic teaching how to distinguish between those spirits who guide the growth of humanity in the course of successive periods of time, reaching the summit in spirits such as Buddha and that spirit to whom all the rest, even Buddha himself, have alluded, and who is the unitary spirit of the whole earth evolution, just as the sun is the unitary body of the whole planetary system. This unitary spirit must be designated in the sense of the fourth post-Atlantean period of civilization as the Christ. In the solar system we cannot speak in the ordinary sense of two suns and say that the sun which at one time covers the ram is not the same sun which covers the goat at another time, 
we must be quite clear that it is the same sun which passes through all the signs of the zodiac, but that there are different planets which pass through the zodiac. We must also be clear on the following point. When we speak of the Christ who passes through the spheres of the different civilizations of the whole evolution of humanity on the earth, and who has always been recognized by all religions when they attain their climax, we must distinguish this Christ spirit from the spirits of the different spheres which reached their summit, as it were, in their great individualities, even as Buddhism reached its climax in Buddha. This shows how the objective must first be sought in these matters. When the Western occultist has to allude to this fact, he or she ought not to be reproached with wishing to bring forward something that would be seen as a lack of tolerance toward other religions, while theosophy has the task of allowing every religion its right place. When such a reproach is made, we should not forget that what was demanded of the Western occultists has already been accomplished. Did the Christ impulse arise in the West? Has any Western nation brought forth the Christ impulse from its own people, its own races? No. The Christ impulse, as an impulse, given to the whole of humanity, has been accepted by the West, though this Christ impulse, in relation to its external presentation, was foreign to the peoples of the West. Western civilization first showed that it had a comprehension of the necessary renunciation of personal possession. When the West declined the spirit of motion on Mars as a direct inspirer, when it exchanged that inspirer for the Christ spirit, the inspirer corresponding to the sun spirit of wisdom, it accomplished an historical and important fact. It is unfair that the West should be blamed by other religions for intolerance in respect of this matter. The great leaders of the other religions always show that they recognize the spirits of wisdom as being more exalted than the spirits of motion. Just those who wish to make their own spirit of motion a sort of leading spirit under another name and do not themselves wish to take the step of ascending from their own spirit to the sun spirit might say that intolerance is shown by those who have already practiced tolerance. Let them first exercise tolerance in other spheres. The tolerance that the West has already exercised in exchanging its spirit of motion for a spirit of wisdom. Thus a theosophical act was accomplished before theosophy existed by seeing that the individual religions have their rights inasmuch as no single impulse belonging to any one single group of humanity is claimed for the Christ, but only that to which theosophy also lays claim namely to seek the impulse that is an impulse of humanity as distinct from the special religions as the sun impulse is from all the planets. It is from the depths of occultism, my dear friends, that these facts are represented objectively. And if it were ever to be said that this representation of the Christ impulse arises from any special national or racial interest or from Western interests, such a remark could be made only through ignorance of the relation of facts or through a misrepresentation of them. In all things we must boldly and sincerely face objective facts, and we can only do this if we look into the depths of the world's becoming. All occult truths show us finally how cosmic evolution comes about, but we must have the courage as well as the necessary impartiality to come face to face with this cosmic evolution. Regarding names, it does not concern us whether they are borrowed from the East or from the West, or whether they are born by this or that personal spirit. What does concern us, what we must recognize, is what is at work in the world. Spiritual science teaches us to see and perceive what works in the world. 
In fact, in the field of spiritual science, we have developed the instinct, I might say, for finding the right. We must not always long for new sensations, but try to understand a little of what lies in the first impulses of the theosophical movement. When H. P. Blavatsky identified the Buddha with Mercury, a great truth was expressed, which will be so much the more recognized, the more the relation of the Buddha to Christ is recognized in occult spheres, just as we learn to know cosmic relationships better when we recognize the relation of the planet Mercury to the fixed star, the Sun. These things cannot be shaken from their foundations through human prejudices, but they only work aright in the process of civilization if we impartially look them in the face. This had to be added to what was stated today regarding the spirits active in the planets and in the sun, for these spirits extend their activity to the earth, and the world has no idea how deeply much of what must be taught in popular lectures is rooted in occult foundations. How deeply grounded is that relation which has just been given of the successive spheres of civilization, of which the one culminated in Buddha, the other in, call it what you will, what the fourth epoch of civilization called Christ. How far the one differs from the other can only be learned from the depths of occultism. But occultism also convinces us how rightly looked at the cosmos everywhere offers us signs for what is so deeply instilled within our hearts. So we must say, quote, if we learn the writings spread forth in the cosmos, in the stars, in their ordering and motions, we shall find that from the cosmos everywhere there speaks what permeates our hearts with truth, love, and that piety which carries forward the evolution of humanity from epoch to epoch. Close quotes, the end of lecture nine.